Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez, and I'm the director of Rare Book School. And it's my privilege to welcome you to this, the first lecture in our 35th anniversary summer series. Um, before I introduce our speaker, however, um, most regrettably, it falls upon me to let you know that the, the Dean of American Bookselling, uh, William Reese, died this morning. Um, and uh, he had cancer that relapsed, and um, it was a merciful passing. He died at his family farm this morning in, in Maryland. He was 63 years old. Bill was a distinguished member of the Rare Book School faculty. He was a great benefactor to our school. He was a transformative board member for the American Antiquarian Society. And the Reese Fellowships in this, their 20th year, at I think 16 different institutions have been transformative in uh, helping people uh, get a purchase in both librarianship and scholarship in American studies. And he will be profoundly missed in our community. Um, so with Bethany's permission, why don't we take a moment just to um, collect our thoughts and uh, have a moment of silence in, in respect for Bill and his family. On to happier things. Uh, Bill came here last. He gave four lectures, but the last one he gave was in 2016. And the, the, the audio of that, I'm pretty sure, is, is up. Um, Rare Book School has erected a, a tribute page to Bill um, that uh, I, I recommend to you. And I thank Jeremy DeBell for his good offices in this regard. Um, Bethany Nowitzki has somehow managed to be highly eminent and wonderfully humane. She is the executive director of the Digital Library Federation of the Council on Library and Information Resources, known to many of us as CLEAR. Um, the Digital Library Federation sounds like something out of a bad sci-fi movie, it's true. <laughs> Uh, but, but it's not. Um, in addition to this distinguished title and great leadership that she's exercising, she is also one of our own. She's research associate professor of digital humanities in the Department of English at the University of Virginia. And much more importantly than these two antecedent things, she is a distinguished member of the Rare Book School faculty. Uh, Bethany, uh, in her work as the head of the Digital Library Federation, is doing many things, but 
perhaps the one that I would call to your attention is the fact that she's been collaborating for several years now with a number of international partners on the digital library of the Middle East. And if you take anything away from this introduction, Google Digital Library of the Middle East, Bethany and her colleagues are saving cultural heritage um, that is profoundly imperiled and providing a kind of backup um, that, that could be extremely important for the generations to come. Uh, she was here, of course, at the University of Virginia Library from 2007 to 2015. She was the founding director of Scholars Lab and the Department of Digital Research and Scholarship. And she additionally served for many years wisely and well, I might add, as special advisor to the provost for the advancement of the digital humanities at the University of Virginia. She was formerly a distinguished presidential fellow at CLEAR, president of the Association for Computers and Humanities, and chair of both the UVA General Faculty Council and the Modern Language Association's Committee on Information Technology. Her doctorate in English is from the University of Virginia, where she studied under the truly great Jerome McGann. And she has a master's degree in education from Wake Forest University. Uh, I will do this rapidly. Navisky's past projects include, and I'm sure my list is incomplete, Neatline, the Praxis Program and Praxis Network, Speaking in Code, Hashtag Alt Academy, the Scholarly Communications Institutes, Institute, Nines, Yuxta, and the Rossetti Archive. In 2013, she was named one of the 10 tech innovators by the Chronicle of Higher Education, which pretty much summed it up. Bethany Navisky likes to build things. We are delighted to have her among our number this evening. Please join me in welcoming Bethany Navisky. Michael, thank you so much for that overblown introduction. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and thanks for taking a moment to um, share with us some words about Bill. I know that he has many friends in the audience. Um, this is a talk about digital stewardship and heritage futures at a strange confluence. I'm used to saying cultural heritage, cultural heritage futures, and I will certainly be addressing those today, uh, possibilities for the strongly future-oriented digital stewardship of human cultural expression as we encounter it in transitory embodied performances as intangible culture, or as is your happy focus this week at RBS in ways that leave more lasting material traces. But I use the phrase, that broader phrase, heritage futures, deliberately, because this is a talk that moves beyond my training and my comfort zone in two big ways. 
So first, I'm going to step out of the humanities to gesture briefly at projects in digital stewardship, access, and analysis, work that I, I try to foster in a role that still feels new to me at um, the Digital Library Federation. Um, projects that take their subject, as their subject, our broader global heritage of biodiversity. That's a heritage that we share with all living things, present and future, and we have to date poorly stewarded it for them. Uh, and in the resulting devastation rests a legacy that we have only moderately well documented for ourselves. So there's that. Next, I'm here to address a set of issues that might at first seem even farther afield from book culture and the digital humanities, but I hope to show you that they should be of intimate concern to all of us who occupy ourselves as scholars with the assembly of evidence for research and argument, as community organizers for uh, the development of collections for activist work, or as librarians, archivists, and museum workers with the creation, the migration, and the thoughtful preservation of heritage collections of many kinds. So these issues center around a present revolution in machine learning and artificial intelligence, a fundamental shift in computing which should demand more than just your awareness and uh, more than just the attention of us uh, bookish types. It's a revolution that asks for our active engagement and calls for the skills and the deep-seated understandings that a background in the humanities almost uniquely provides. I draw my title from Adrienne Rich from a bit of a 1977 poem that she called Natural Resources. And I'll read it to you from the screen. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. So sounding through today's talk, alongside maybe a bit of ecological uh, despair, you may hear an undertone of that commonplace counteracting and creative power of restoration or repair. But my basic argument is simple. It is that the constitution of our natural history and cultural heritage collections becomes vastly more important when we accept the fact that we assemble them at the end of things that all archives of the modern world, and indeed our paleontological and archeological records and the stories that we read in landscapes and in ice cores, all of these are archives of diminishment, of a shift to plant, animal, and human monocultures. They are archives, in fact, of the sixth great mass extinction of life on our planet. And accompanying that sobering thought is a second necessary understanding, that the makeup of our heritage collections likewise becomes vastly more important when we realize that we no longer steward them for human readers alone. This is the strange confluence of our present moment. In the same way that human beings are shaped by what we read, hear, and see, 
the machine readers that follow us into and perhaps beyond the Anthropocene have begun to learn from and be molded by increasingly unsupervised encounters with our digital libraries. I'll describe these uh, encounters in more detail in a moment as I ask you to consider what we offer up for study in our heritage collections now and how we might better assemble archives of mass extinction for the living generations and the artificial intelligences to come. Now, I hope this talk, maybe when it's over, um, will prompt you to dwell on some further questions too. And so I'll just sort of lay those out. What embodied and perhaps even a bibliographically embodied and indigenous knowledge or tacit understandings do we neglect to represent in our digital libraries? Which ones do we choose through that neglect to extinguish? And what does all that mean at this precise cultural and technological moment? What sorts of records and things should we let go? Or should we protect from surveillance and machine learning? And from an elegiac archive, from an archive of endings, can we foster new kinds of human or at the very least humane agency. This is a concept uh, that I've formerly called speculative collections, and I think we'll think of it in, um, in this context as uh, digital archives from which to deep dream new futures. So, as Rich suggests, the most ordinary and still extraordinary power we mortal beings possess is the power to make poetry from fragments of the past. We've begun to extend that power in uncharted ways. Might it be called upon one day to reconstitute the world? Okay, that was heavy. Um, I'm gonna really start with a light overview of some relevant projects. The Biodiversity Heritage Library is a Smithsonian-based International Consortium and Digitization Collective of Botanical and Natural History Libraries. It was the winner of DLF's inaugural Community Capacity Award in 2016, and it's the global leader in the development of a lovely and effective human and machine-readable biodiversity commons, and I urge you to, to seek it out. It's, uh, it comes complete with APIs for computational access of various kinds, harvesting and delivery through partnering nodes uh, worldwide, and important contributions to both scientific data exchanges, such as the Encyclopedia of Life, and other taxonomic services, and also to research in the history of science. So its collections include historical annotated herbarium specimens, for instance, and botanists' field notebooks, some of which were digitized across several institutions through a clear hidden collections grant. I'm obligated to mention that. BHL itself offers digitization training around the world, and it works with publishers to make materials within copyright, uh, as well as out of copyright, available as part of its federated corpus for research and learning. So even when our globally dispersed inheritance of biodiversity literature is drawn together digitally, uh, 54 million pages worth in BHL alone, the resulting records are not necessarily easy for researchers to use. So mining biodiversity 
was the theme of a productive 2015 NEH Digging Into Data grant, which coupled novel text mining and visualization techniques with crowdsourcing and outreach around BHL. And projects like Paleo Deep Dive and Geo Deep Dive represent AI-assisted efforts to pull out so-called dark data from its bibliographic tar pits, those features in scientific journal literature like tables and figures that have not easily lent themselves to structured searching and the assembly of comparative data sets. Those who study the fossil record have remained, as the creators of Paleo Deep Dive put it, data limited, both in terms of the pace of discovery and the description of new fossils, and in terms of their ability to synthesize existing published knowledge on the fossil record. Many other sciences, particularly those for whom uh, physical samples and specimens are the source of data, face similar challenges. Now, to address these and, and uh, like uh, challenges, BHL was the beneficiary of uh, an IMLS-funded National Digital Stewardship Residency Program, NDSR, which placed several residents with the BHL in a recent round at sort of sites around the country. And there they worked on machine learning approaches to named entity recognition and metadata enhancement of biodiversity collections, including projects that took up the bibliographical challenges of 18th and 19th century field notes, which I super love. Meanwhile, things like Digital Life, a project out of the University of Massachusetts Amherst, aims to preserve the heritage of life on Earth through creating and sharing high quality and accurate 3D models of living organisms. They call this the Beast Cam. And they do it through highly accurate photogrammetry. They kind of circle cameras around living creatures and convert the resulting overlapping 2D images to 3D representations, the most detailed available. And thus, the field of biodiversity informatics continues to grow and to pose data curation challenges of various sorts, ranging from the preservation and analysis of 3D models to data generated through remote sensing, to the collection and analysis of, for instance, audio data relating to illegal deforestation activities in the Brazilian rainforest, in which the Timbe people are installing and maintaining what they call guardian devices. These are old cell phones hooked to solar adapters and microphones that they install high up in the trees and they're able to record, and through a machine learning processing technique, they're able to recognize the sounds of trucks and chainsaws up to a kilometer away. And they send a real-time alert to the Tembe Rangers, who are a kind of security force within the village, um, who can intervene or they can report the logging activity to authorities. So the use of machine learning in such contexts, as well as in books, is rapidly becoming the norm, and it's big business, as well as conservation. Microsoft has just announced an AI for Earth initiative, which commits $50 million in grant funds over the next five years for artificial intelligence projects that support clean water, agriculture, climate, and biodiversity, and that build on various Microsoft shared APIs and services in the field. And there continue to be 
efforts that I think are relevant and, and, and of a very different sort. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking here of community organizing work like Project ARC, that's A-R-C-C, through which Era Tansy and colleagues began drawing together archivists responding to climate change. And I think of Dark Mountain, a collective of artists and writers who have, I quote, stopped believing the stories our civilization tells itself. We see, they say, that the world is entering an age of ecological collapse, material contraction, and social and political unraveling. And we want our cultural responses to reflect this reality rather than deny it. And if you're interested, um, I've addressed the Dark Mountain Project once before in, in a lot more depth. Um, in a paper called DH and the Anthropocene. And the, the co-founder of Dark Mountain, Dubal Kine, will have a, an article in a forthcoming um, special issue of a journal that I'm editing with Rachel Matson and Samantha McFarlane. Uh, the journal's Kula, and the subject is Endangered Knowledge. So, um, yeah, so even on a smaller scale, there's also work like that of Kate Shapira, who is a poet and a lecturer in the English department at Brown. Her climate anxiety counseling project is like a Lucy from Peanuts style booth that she sets up in parks. I'm scared for the effects of climate change on the world I love, Shapira writes. Rather than try to think about, save, or mourn for the whole world, I decided to think about my city and state and the living creatures, including other humans, who share it with me. Lately, she has been processing grief and combating extinction uh, by drawing Rhode Island organisms on little cards and handing them out, um, all the while writing and encouraging others to write alternative histories of our ecological past and future. Okay, is everybody still with me? Um, now let's talk about the AI techniques that are making computationally exciting projects possible, and which also hold poetic possibilities that may help explain why I set things like Kate Shapira's alternate histories and Dark Mountain's clear-eyed art next to the at-scale collections building of the Biodiversity Heritage Library. Slides are going to slow down, um, and, and process talk is going to happen now, so buckle in. Modern techniques in machine learning hold few things in common with prior attempts to create a thinking machine. Attempts dating back to the mid-20th century and indeed much farther to our earliest conception of what an analytical engine could be. For the past several decades, a major strand of cognitive and computer science worked on artificial intelligence in what you might think of as a top-down or didactic mode, creating what we call expert systems. These are hierarchical decision-making structures carefully designed to reflect enlightenment principles of logic and reasoning and engineered to act on content that we had pre-processed and prepared, or at the very least, content that we had predicted. These methods, slow to advance, were based on somewhat clinical and inflexible models of understanding in which the machine followed clear instructions in order to make decisions about a database, again, of pre-interpreted material or a set of thoroughly anticipated conditions. So it knew what it had been told to know and it acted in the way that it was programmed. 
Recent, really startling leaps forward in machine learning are modeled more on natural neural networks, on the ways that perception and judgment arise organically between human sensory organs in the brain. And they move forward not really through traditional methods of computer programming, but in a kind of Darwinian evolutionary mode. So imagine a profligate process in which many little hermeneutic bots are spawned, at first almost at random and at a shocking speed and scale, a kind of speculative computing. These critters are not carefully crafted, and they are not smart. But before they're permitted to breed or evolve, their ability to accurately assess a small desired situation. For instance, to tell a daisy from a rose or a, or a typographical F from a long S, that's tested against something called a truth set. This is a quantity of provided data, sometimes surprisingly small, which has been, to the best of its provider's knowledge, accurately described or classified or transcribed or verified. And the bots that answer questions right about the data set are allowed to live and propagate their mysteriously good qualities of judgment into future generations, while those that miss the mark or that fail to pass their tests are tossed out, they're switched off, they're axed. And, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. And if there are any computer scientists in the room, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. But that's the basic gist. And because we no longer design these little agents to understand things, we simply filter them based on their ability to pest tasks of fitness, we don't really understand ourselves how they work. Mostly, we just understand the tests. And generally, but certainly not always, we kind of grok the basic lineaments of the corpus of material that the machines are being tested on. Our deep ignorance about their functioning is compounded as new generations of test-passing bots build on their ancestor bots' successes and train each other up to fresh challenges and ever greater layers of complexity. In other words, in machine learning, artificial brains are self-assembling bottom-up understandings through increasingly unsupervised encounters with the contents of digital repositories. Some test data are drawn from assiduously curated historical or scientific collections. Many others are part of our vast and rapidly expanding sort of digital detritus, um, conglomerations of the traces of contemporary life. So these are data that represent microtransactions of various sorts, every click, every like, um, all our interactions with online systems, tools, platforms, and with each other online. Often, we are being tested, too. Machine learning algorithms are rewarded and replicated for successfully manipulating us, influencing us to buy a product, or watch a suggested video, or share a meme, or develop a political opinion. For a machine to tell a daisy from a, oops, rose, it might require a thousand accurately identified images of each in a human-provided initial training set. And even if you've never tinkered with such things, you can play with this idea very easily and even embed it in your phone um, by following an online tutorial written by a guy named Pete Warden, who's a machine learning expert at Google. It's called TensorFlow for Poets. 
Once trained on roses and daisies, it might take only another 10 carefully labeled images of a sunflower or a violet for your smartphone camera to begin accurately identifying those flowers as well. Ashok Popat, who is another um, Google research scientist working on pattern recognition for handwriting and optical character recognition for automated text transcription, recently told a group of us who had gathered at Northeastern University to discuss multilingual and historical OCR that a successful machine learning algorithm, once properly trained and working well in one language or on a set of like documents, might require only an additional 1,000 lines of accurately transcribed text in order to retrain for a brand new typeface or script or complex page design. Techniques like these make evident the value of a collections as data approach. That is an approach to the machine reading readiness and the iterative human in the loop technological advancement of digital libraries for which a group of smart IMLS funded practitioners in the DLF community advocate, and this project is led by Thomas Padilla and Lori Allen, among others. The possibilities here are stunning enough to realize, but even more unsettling and exciting, or perhaps at least animating uh, to digital collection stewards should be the knowledge that, once set along a fruitful path, a truly successful set of machine learning algorithms can begin to produce its own training data to advance in understanding and better pass real world tests. This is the generation of completely imagined, fictional, truly speculative collections, manufactured flowers or books or manuscript pages, leaves that never were. This is information that the machine has dreamt up from its past encounters with real world data that it has created itself, it's constituted, it's reconstituted, in order to play the testing game in what is called a deep learning framework. And what's happening in these contexts is hard to see. I have no slide. <laughs> and that opaqueness plays an increasingly provocative role in a set of twinned anxieties that are arising among machine learning practitioners. They're closely aligned with calls in the broader community for greater transparency and accountability in machine learning and online representation. Calls that come from brilliant folks like Frank Pasquale, author of the Black Box Society, and Sophia Noble, author of the new and really essential NYU Press book, Algorithms of Oppression, on how supposedly neutral search engines reinforce and reflect deep-seated structural racism. We have to ask what is lost, who is harmed, and what should be forgotten with the embrace of artificial intelligence in decision-making, Noble writes. It is of no collective social benefit to organize information resources on the web through processes that solidify inequality and marginalization. So she takes a clear-eyed look at the implicit biases that permeate our digital collections and our systems of cataloging and verification, unveiling the many ways that African-American people, among others, have been contained and constrained in classification systems. Noble has recently called for the regulation of search engines in the public interest, and this summer's implementation of a new general data protection regulation, the GDPR by the European Union, uh, gets us closer to that on a worldwide scale 
than many thought possible. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's the reason that your inbox has been filled with every company's privacy notices lately. So in fact, Cliff Wang calls this a rare case in which a law has managed to leap to a future that academics and tech companies are just beginning to devote concentrated effort to understanding. Part of the GDPR demands a kind of algorithmic and machine learning accountability. Companies and other entities that hold any data on EU citizens face billions of dollars in penalties if, among other things, they do not share at the outset of harvesting and at any point on request exactly what information they hold and how it is being processed and used. So our collections as data colleagues are thinking along these lines as well in the cultural heritage context. And I won't pause to read that, but you can kind of cast your eyes over it. It's from the Santa Barbara Statement on Collections as Data. Okay. Now, I said that I see two machine learning anxieties that stem from and are aligned with these concerns about data exploitation and structural bias. And they fall under the categories, broadly speaking, of reproducibility and deep fakes. So I'll start with deep fakes. Deep fakes exploit machine learning techniques running on large audiovisual collections to produce reasonably convincing false videos in which, for instance, a celebrity's head might be superimposed on a porn star's body um, or a politician might be made to look squarely at the camera and say things that he or she would never say. So a simple piece of desktop software was released in January of this year that puts this technology within almost anyone's reach. And the obvious dangers of that, not just for personal reputations, but to geopolitical stability and the future of our democracy, for instance, are so great that comedian and writer Jordan Peele recently collaborated with BuzzFeed on a prolonged and convincing video of Barack Obama meant to raise awareness and promote greater media literacy around deep fakes. So deep fake Obama signs off by saying, stay woke, bitches. That's an anxiety of reproduction. The other uh, machine learning anxiety is that of reproducibility. Most of you will have seen or perhaps even played with deep dream images and generators that hit the scene in 2015. And I'm, I'm talking about those psychedelic pictures that swept your social media feeds in which pagodas emerged from clouds and trees and everything that could possibly look like the face of a dog did um, in a kind of canine apotheosis of pareidolia. The splinted poster that, um, that Jeremy put together for my talk uses Chris Rodley's application of that same deep dreaming technique. Rodley trained a neural network on fruits and flowers by giving it nothing to look at ever in its life but historical botanical prints. And then he asked it to gaze on some dinosaurs and show us what he saw. So what it took me a while to sort of internalize about such images is why they exist at all. They are, in essence, the byproducts of rather desperate attempts by developers of machine learning technologies to understand how their own systems work. They try by running the image recognition algorithms built up independently by all those little Darwinian bots that I described. They run them in reverse. So here, here's Pete Worden again of TensorFlow for Poets 
um, on why this matters. He writes, it's hard to explain to people who haven't worked with machine learning, but we're still back in the dark ages when it comes to tracking changes and rebuilding models from scratch. It's so bad sometimes, it almost feels like stepping back in time to when we coded without source control. So neural network interpretability is becoming a field of research in its own right. Chris Ola and colleagues write that by itself, the feature visualization that is pictured in those deep dream outputs will never give a completely satisfactory understanding of what's happening under the hood of machine learning. But they see it as one of the fundamental building blocks that, combined with additional tools, can empower humans to understand these systems. Cliff Wang calls the field explainable AI, or XAI. Its goal is to make machines able to account for the things they learn in ways that we can understand, he writes. But that goal, of course, raises the fundamental question of whether the world a machine sees can ever be made to match our own. So this lack of understanding and our inability to reproduce machine learning techniques as a stepwise process is something that Will Knight, or, or at least maybe his headline writer in the MIT Technology Review calls the dark secret at the heart of AI. And Knight ultimately concludes that just as many aspects of human behavior are impossible to explain in detail, perhaps it won't be possible for AI to explain everything it does. And he quotes Jeff Kloon of the University of Wyoming, who sort of shrugs and says, you know, even if some human being can give you a reasonable sounding explanation for his or her actions, it's probably incomplete. And the same could very well be true for AI. It might just be part of the nature of intelligence that only part of it is exposed to rational explanation. Some of it's just instinctual or subconscious or inscrutable. But even if we finally chalk up some aspects of machine learning to you know, the ineffable, I'd suggest that issues of forgery, reproduction, and textual inheritance or stematics are things that scholars of bibliography might well take an interest in. So, you know, obviously, there's some deeply concerning stuff here, and perhaps a reason for us at the present juncture to create a kind of London charter for scholarly and archival work in machine learning, to promote trust and best practices, just like the scholarly 3D community did about a year ago. But, but I want to be quick to say that I also find creativity and possibility and delight in these technologies, especially vis-a-vis -vis generative and artistic approaches to historical collections. So as I attempt to pick up the pace again, um, let's quickly survey a few applications that exercise the poetic power of machine learning. Here is an MIT C-Cell project called Videos of the Future, and the videos aren't running, but, um, but in which, after watching about two years' worth of unlabeled YouTube videos, um, my 11-year-old daughter, I believe, has conducted the same experiment, um, and, and then given an image, a deep learning algorithm can not only predict, but actually create one to two second clips of the next thing that will happen. Waves crash, train rolls further down the tracks, the golfers swing, babies do what babies do. Um, here we have a screenshot from Naotokoi's Imaginary Soundscapes project, which is a web-based installation 
where viewers can freely walk around a Google Street View. It feels like you're in Google Street View. And immerse themselves in an artificial soundscape based on the visual qualities of those real-world spaces, but wholly imagined by deep learning models. So that's one also to look up. It's very neat when you get into the church and you hear the sort of echoing and people murmuring, and it's, it's cool stuff. And here's my favorite as a lapsed Victorianist. These are Peter Leonard's speculative 19th century faces. A purely creative twist on equally exciting but more straightforward work that he's been doing at Yale um, on projects called Neural Neighbors and Pixplot, which also you should definitely um, seek out and play with. All, all three efforts, Pixplot, uh, Neural Neighbors, this crazy thing, um, they, uh, they represent machine learning analyses of about 27,000 photographs from the Meserve Kuhnhart collection at the Beinecke. And this one represents a weekend's work in training a generative adversarial network. Results seem good, Leonard says. These people have never existed. So it, it looked at all of those faces, and now, now I can dream of Victorians. Experiments like these, and, and like Broadley's Blossoming Dinosaurs, and although I don't believe he's yet using machine learning, like beautiful projects um, uh, by Australian cultural heritage design professor Mitchell Whitelaw, this is his biodiversity data browser, local kin, um, along with the ecological, industrial, and environmental concretions that Whitelaw describes in an important new Open Library of Humanities article called Matters of Concern, Generative Approaches to Digital Collections, all of these things prompt me to wonder what more we might do with historical and natural history collections, perhaps especially at the intersection of the two with machine learning. So I'd love to see, for instance, um, an artistic or an analytical machine learning experiment using Scottish flower painter Patrick Symes' 1814 update to Werner's nomenclature of colors. This book has recently been digitized and republished by the Smithsonian. It contains the color names that were used by naturalists, zoologists, and archaeologists throughout the 19th century. And it shaped, for instance, uh, Charles Darwin's formal chromatic vocabulary on the voyage of the Beagle. Experiments and artistic interventions like the ones that I've just zoomed through position digital heritage collections, as William James said of words and theories under a philosophy of pragmatism, as instruments, not answers to enigmas in which we can rest. We don't lie back on them, he wrote. We move forward and on occasion make nature over again by their aid. So it's an odd thing, I suppose, to ask the William James of 1909 to speak to contemporary Afrofuturist pop music critic Codwell Eschen, but I will do it. The most startling concept that I've gleaned from Eschen's mind-blowing late 90s monograph, uh, More Brilliant Than the Sun, Adventures in Sonic Fiction, um, which I think you can also get in a nutshell in Jonna Comfra's documentary of Afrofuturism, which is called The Last Angel of History. It's 1996. The most startling concept is Eschen's understanding of the objects of African-American cultural heritage, not as things that are fixed to be looked upon and appreciated, but as living, usable, 
playable, and filled with potential for transformation and creative reuse. In his film, Akumfra imagined a data thief, an archaeologist who might dig up usable code. For Eschen, the perfect example of this was a vinyl record on a turntable. By any measure, it's a recording of the past, meant for simple playback. But in the hands of a scratch artist, it becomes both an instrument and a highly accessible platform. And that's the spirit in which I might uh, I imagine that AI can help us activate our digital collections. Okay. Although I've described it in layman's terms, which honestly is about all I'm capable of, I have gone into some detail today on how machine learning works because, for one thing, it constitutes, as Pete Warden says, a radical change in how we build software. Instead of writing and maintaining intricate layered tangles of logic, the developer has to become a teacher, a curator of training data, and an analyst of results. For Warden, this means the fundamental replacement of traditional software with deep learning. There will be a long ramp up as knowledge diffuses through the developer community, but in 10 years, he predicts, most software jobs won't involve programming. Instead, they'll involve a kind of pedagogy and deep expertise, not only in some problem set, some area of scholarship or some subject domain, but in data curation, in assembling and arranging collections of our digital cultural heritage. This is skilled archival labor, this is not magic. Um, and if you ever needed an argument for the value and relevancy of librarianship and museum and archival studies, well, there it is. So another reason that I laid out the, the sort of basic mechanism of machine learning is to make the point that for all its novelty, it's really not an alien process. It's in many ways deeply human and deeply connected to our bibliographical and media inheritance. So I'd like to transition now to a quick discussion of two things that I think that we hold in common with machine learning. So one is that artificial intelligence, like us mere mortals, only recognizes what in some way it already knows. For instance, this deep neural network uh, is, is now before you making predictions based on input from a camera. It's only before ever looked at ocean waves and rocks. So you can watch it see the sea. And then later, um, Memo Octon, who's the artist, shows us the same system trained on fire, which I don't have a picture of, but also on flowers. It's trying to make sense of what it sees in the context of what it's seen before, he writes. Again, it can see only what it already knows, just like us. So that's number one. Number two, a neural network sometimes has to go too far to center itself. And this is a profound insight I got from eavesdropping on two people named Dr. Beef and the Wise Turtle on Twitter. Um, so I'm actually not kidding. So Dr. Beef um, is a Stanford machine learning researcher, a recent West Virginian high school graduate named Robbie Barrett. And um, this kid's AI-generated paintings have wound up on the front page of magazines. He was marveling at the way his neural network vacillated back and forth 
from landscapes that were dark and gloomy to landscapes that were wild and bright. And uh, the wise turtle, Turtle Kronberg, responds, the organic process of learning is what I call loopy as it moves in a sort of corkscrew spiral like a particle in an ocean wave, or, she goes on, like a toddler learning to walk. It has to go too far in all directions to learn how to center itself. I like that. For a long time, writes the inimitable Rebecca Salmet, we thought the work of climate change was imagining the future until we realized that all our estimates were too optimistic and the trouble was not an issue for our grandchildren, but it was in the present with us now. Even to imagine the present means summoning up the reality and the necessity of systems too vast and complex to appear before the eye. We, in the safer center, had to imagine the edges. Okay, and I think I've, I've taxed your patience enough already. Um, if I had more time this evening, I would tell you about digital work that I see that's trying to peacefully center itself and its users. Um, very often by dwelling in material culture and human embodiment at a time when life seems most precarious. Um, and about some other projects that either fail or succeed in imagining the edges from that safer center. So these sorts of things range from the amusingly named SkyKnit, which is a machine learning algorithm producing knitting patterns that can be realized in yarn, to, um, to what you see here, Natrice Gaskin's experiments with woodcuts and linoleum prints of deep-dreamed images to a snow and ice research center project that attempts to learn endangered northern arctic languages by reviewing recordings that are themselves fixed in obsolete AV formats. To, uh, I guess maybe the last one I'll mention, is a group of MIT researchers who are terrifying me by creating a machine learning system that picks up and understands sub-vocalizations so these are the tiny involuntary movements and neuromuscular signals inside our faces and jaws that happen silently when we think or read words. All in all, when I look around at who in the digital and paper-based stewardship community is best poised to take up the ideas that I've shared today in a responsible way, counteracting cultures of extraction and endangerment that, just as in the natural world, often characterize the interaction of our institutions with the objects and the lives that they touch, it's conservationists, it's artists and writers, and it's the people working in deeply collaborative ways in community archives or who are informed by archival ethics being developed in those sites. They are the folks who are thinking along the edges um, and best using our non-extraordinary powers of poesis right now. So I commend to you things like thoughtful work on social media archiving by the Documenting the Now team, work by last year's DLF Forum keynoter Rashida Phillips to organize her North Philadelphia community through principles of black quantum futurism against forces of gentrification and around alternate visions of time in the archives. And also there's a new article out by um, Michelle Caswell and um, uh, Marika Seifer and some of, some of their colleagues in The Public Historian. And that's an ethnographic piece on the motives of 17 community archivists who are working on a dozen projects in Southern California. And it's entitled, What We Do Crosses Over Into Activism, 
the politics and practice of community archives. So these are the folks that I want to see advising on future-oriented approaches to machine learning in libraries and archives of the Anthropocene. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. Poets have shown us how to use our most ordinary powers to reconstitute the world. And because I think we're just at the beginning of a conversation and a process, um, despite my strong sense that it's a process of assembling fragments at the end of things, um, I'll close not with some kind of final pronouncement, but with Derek Walcott, some lines from his 1992 Nobel Prize lecture. These words, like, um, like those of Rich, kind of helped focus my thinking on the problem sets and the fundamental fragilities um, that I've tried to lay before you today. So Walcott writes, break of A's, and the love that reassembles the fragments is stronger than the love which took its symmetry for granted when it was whole. The glue that fits the pieces is the sealing of its original shape. And this is the exact process of the making of poetry, or what should be called not its making, but its remaking, the fragmented memory, the armature that frames the god, even the right that surrenders it to a final pyre, the god assembled, cane by cane, reed by weaving reed, line by plaited line, as the artisans of felicity would erect his holy echo. So thank you for listening, letting me work some of these things out and try them out on you. Um, I'm not sure how much time we have for questions. I'd be happy to take some. Except not from Worthy. It's that anxiety that sort of balances between the, the deep fake and like deep delight that we have in seeing seeing these things. And if you'll notice on this one, now none of the pictures, the artist Chris Rodley is not circulating really high quality images of this. I think he's trying to figure, you know, it sort of hit the big time in such a way. I think he's trying to figure out what to do with these pictures next. But it, but if you can kind of see 
these um, these sort of pulled out sections that look like writing. You know, they, they, that that too is is dreamt up. I I was just stopped cold when that Google engineer um, described to us the systems that he's building or starting to you know, invent their own, like they're, they're trying to make self-driving cars, right? They've kind of shifted away from a lot of the Google Books emphasis um, into augmented reality and, and things like self-driving cars. So they're focusing more on road signs. They, can, can AI read road signs reliably and well? Well, it's making up its own road signs now. I want to see them. <laughs> and then I want to be like nowhere near those cars. <laughs> But I, want to, but I want to see those signs. Because you're right, they're picking up on elements that, um, that sensitive readers of documents right, know well, and maybe some that we don't, some things that are so sort of naturalized to us that maybe we don't notice them when we you know, dwell in medieval manuscripts or, um, or 19th century field books or whatever, whatever it is that we work in. So that, that's an exciting aspect of this stuff, too. Worthy, I was just joking. Go ahead and, you know... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, it's actually not about any of that pre-plan stuff, but the, uh, the notion of the AI systems is the way you talk about them having the training sets. Yeah. Uh, and I thought you were then kind of connecting that to the notion of curation and archive building as supplying the training sets. Do you have any hope for what the methodologies for that kind of curation are? And to me, coming from the AI side, it's all the market is you don't need to understand why the training set is going to do the right thing for you. So but if you're going to be a responsible archivist, creating the archive so that they, I think, will do something interesting even. Yeah. The right thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is actually why the, this is why I wanted to put these ideas in front of an audience like this because I I do think you know so so the, the Bruce's question you know leads kind of beautifully into this because it really is important what these systems see and what they see early on and you know I, I talked to a couple of um, different folks who um, who you know live in the world of machine learning and have gotten different answers about, you know, how vital is it that, so, you know, we're, we're kind of thinking of training up these things like you, like you educate a child, right? So, you know, the question is how, how important is, is it that you give them the good stuff early on? Can they compensate later if they, you know, live on a steady diet of um, graphic novels and then you try to give them Jane Eyre and, um, you know, are, are they going to make those shifts? And, and some folks say yes. Yes, they do, and some folks say there there are fundamentals in you know what it what it looked at first that are really important. So you ask it. So so that's 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 one way of saying you know here's a juncture where particularly as um, endangered uh, life forms are disappearing, folk ways are disappearing. That's why I referred to sort of human monocultures as well as natural ones. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not going to make it into our archives. And so it becomes really important for the people who are, uh, who I think now think that they're capturing um, things for human readers and viewers in future, to be thinking exactly as you ask about, you know, what are those methods for sort of at scale preparation of um, digital collections for human readers and machine readers alike. 
So the, the Collections as Data project, that IMLS project, it was a national forum, two rounds of that, and I believe, I hope they'll be going forward um, in, in many different ways, has produced a, a sort of set of outcomes, um, personas that define the types of people who would be engaged in this kind of um, preparation and use process um, for Collections as Data and also uh, what they call facets, which are sort of use cases in different archives. So it's, um, it's critically important that uh, a generation of scholars see this as uh, an activity worth um, getting involved in. So at CLEAR and DLF, we host data curation postdoctoral fellows. And, and we bring them in in particular disciplines. So right now we have postdocs in Latin American and Caribbean studies. Um, we're hopeful of having African American studies postdocs. We, we've had um, medieval and early modern postdocs. Um, people who are sort of deeply uh, embedded in their disciplines, but also understand that the transformation of um, and, and the sort of remediation of libraries, that this is a crucial juncture and that it absolutely requires the active engagement of um, disciplinary experts. So, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer, but I do know that the people who care about this stuff need to, need to be involved. And if Pete Worden is correct, that, um, that it's, it's only going to get sort of, that the, the barrier to entry, if you think that you never had enough, um, you know, never had programming classes as a kid and it's too late for you now, um, it, it's not going to be too late if the, if the activity becomes the preparation, uh, the curation of data sets, the, the sort of thoughtful training of AI. should point out that um, many of the issues that Bethany raises in, in her lecture will be raised um, in, in a slightly different way at a conference at Rare Book School under the auspices of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. It's sponsoring here on the 6th of 7th now, the move to the 7th of September, here at the University of Virginia a conference on archives, memory, and identity. Um, we won't have as great illustrations. You need to know that if you're thinking about coming. But um, many of these issues about what is the future of the archive and how what, what we curate and how we curate it determines futures beyond our ken is, is extremely important because the fragments that we shore against our current ruins will determine the way subsequent generations and perhaps um, machine learning and AI uh, devices that we don't even fathom yet reconstruct mm -hmm. um, the vision of the past that we um, put together Stuart, in, in ways that we don't even understand. Yeah. So um, uh, Bethany, we're very, very grateful to you. We're going to give you a copy of the poster for your office. Thank you. And a little note from the staff. Yeah. And this conversation will continue at Rare Book School at a reception in Bethany's honor, to which you are all most cordially welcome now. Let's thank Bethany. Thank you.